I bought a lead for £50 and I contacted this gentleman, spoke to him, done my due diligence, background checks on the property and the area prices. I'll go down and speak to him in, in person and make him an offer. So I'd written all the numbers, what I could offer him, had it in my back pocket, went down, sat down and uh, had a conversation with him, found out what he wanted to do. And he pulled out a piece of paper with the offers he's had. And all he asked was, um, nobody else has come to see me. Everybody's spoken to either on the phone or email. If you could match any of these offers, I'd rather go with you. The thing was, the offers were way lower than what I was about to offer. Today's special guest is a well-connected, super property investor who likes to try different property deals for fun. He's also the host of a progressive property network here in London, Motil Islam. Hi, thank you. So I've known you for about 10 years. Yeah. About I used to do rent to rents before it was called rent to rents. That's right, yes. <laughs> um, but I'd say along the 10 years, the conversations we've had, uh, you've taught me quite a bit and I hope it comes across like that. I hope I'm not at the same stage. Um, but I want to know about your journey. So tell us where it began. The property journey? Just your, your journey from when you were born in Bangladesh. Oh, my life story. Okay, <laughs> so that's a bit of a longer journey. Um, I was originally born in Bangladesh, uh, came over to the UK at age of one. Uh, not exactly my choice, but yeah, I'm not going to uh, say it was a bad choice. So I've been here since uh, the age of one. Um, I haven't been back to Bangladesh many times. Uh, so most of my upbringing and everything else has been here in the UK. Went to school here, primary, secondary, uh, college and university in the UK. Um, and initially I was into IT, so I pursued IT. And, and along the way, um, I discovered property. So, yeah, that's... So, you went to university in London Met, right? That's or right. It's called London Met now? It, it was called the London Guildhall, now it's called London Metropolitan. So, what did you study and what were you doing in terms of, did you have a part-time job? Or what were you doing during university? Uh, from the age of 16, I've always had a job. Uh, whilst at university, I worked part-time and I used to invest in market stallholders. Um, it's not the conventional thing that you might do, but um, whilst at Southbank University, um, I had a friend that was uh, working at Elephant and Castle Market, oh, wow. doing market stalls, and that's how I started investing in market stallholders. So, not so how, you, what is investing in a market stallholder? So you'll find market stallholders um, usually don't have that much capital st to start with. So when it comes to stock, their rent, etc., they don't have very much to start with. Well, that's what I was finding. So I was purchasing their stock and paying for their rent so that they could uh, sell, sell these on the market stalls in Elephant and Castle. And I would take a share of the profits. And you're 16 then? No, by, by that stage I was uh, about 19, 18. It's a quite smart and brave thing to do at 19. What gave you the courage? It was an opportunity that just came about uh, and the numbers seemed to work. Uh, and I was always looking for an alternative to just working as well because you're always trading time for money. And if there's something else where you can invest in people or even looking at the banks and what they were offering, what, it, was, it was an opportunity. So I looked at it as an opportunity better than leaving the money in the bank, um, the returns were much better. So, well, What were your returns? If you can remember. The returns were actually very good. You would, you know, I was making, if I was investing three, four hundred pounds, I was making that sometimes back in two months, the equivalent of what I'd put in. That's quite good. Yeah. 
Imagine that on a house. Yes. <laughs> that would be brilliant. So after uni, what did you do? Uh, so after uni, I started up an IT company installing uh, uh, IP CCTV systems, voice over IP, uh, and the hardware side of things. Um, and I ran that for a short while before I went fully, fully into property. So what made you get into property? That same, <clears throat> that same friend that had the market stall in Elephant and Castle also had a part-time job in an estate agent's. Okay. And he approached me and goes, considering what I was doing with the market stall holders, I'd be the, I'd be the right person to start investing in property. Would that be something that I would be interested in? So at the age of 19, um, I tried to buy three properties. Um, probably not the best thing to do at the age of 19 because uh, I got gazumped on all three as well. How did you get gazumped? What was the worst one? Well, I think all three were bad. The reason being, I, I'd, I'd already agreed to purchase the properties, had started going through conveyancing, started the process with a mortgage broker. And all of this was new to me, so I didn't know the costs associated with purchasing property. Um, and I also didn't know if I didn't purchase the property or if somebody had gazumped me, how much money I would lose. So I got taught a bit, a bit of a lesson at a, a, a young age that when people do gazump you, you lose a bit of money. So I thought property was actually the worst thing to do. Yeah. It was high risk because of the amount of money that's involved. And you can imagine at the age of nine, 19, I was losing about 2,000 pounds per property. So it was a lot of money for me at that time. Um, and I decided I'm not going to do What property. year is this, 19? We're 19. going back, yeah, we're going back to about 1999. Yeah, so 2,000 was a lot of money then. It was yeah. equivalent, what, five, 6,000 now? Yeah. Okay, so how did you get back up? Well, I carried on looking at what was happening in property. Um, and during that time, property, within a period of about four or five years, had almost doubled. So, you know, with hindsight, you think, had I just done it, um, I would have been in such a, uh, such a good position. And after about three, four years of watching the market continuously going up, continuously going up, and then almost kicking myself, thought, you know what, you've got, to, you've got to basically either start now or you're always going to be kicking yourself and saying, why didn't I do it? So what, what would you say you learned from um, losing £2,000 per property? That you've got to take risks. That risk, I, I didn't carry on investing in property because I thought it was risky. But then you've got to take risks. If, you, if, if you're worried about how much you're going to lose, then you're never going to really take the risk. And that's, that actually hinders you. If you're, if you're looking at what you could actually gain, sometimes it gives you a bit more motivation and, and, and opportunities open up. So do you think that has helped you as of today? I think very, very much so. I'm a lot more optimistic in what I do. Um, although I say I'm optimistic, I'm not, I'm not going like, to not do my due diligence. Yes, I check the numbers. I work on worst case scenarios, but I'm a lot more optimistic, so I would take risks as opposed to previously where... Yeah, spreadsheets has to be your best friend, basically. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when did you actually buy your first property? In 2003, purchased a large corner, uh, corner property with two, two of my relatives. Um, so I had two JG partners on that. We, we converted that into three flats and made one of them a HMO. HMO wasn't a big thing back then. No, so was it? No, it wasn't. So, well, I think HMOs have always been around. Room, we used to call them roomlets. We never really, well, when we started, the term HMO hadn't really been coined. 
So we, we always called it roomlets. Um, and the term came about, I think it was in 2004, um, that it was going to be HMOs. They, were, they weren't so popular, but they were about, yeah. Were they a lot more profitable then than now? Ooh. I think there's a lot more niches now in HMOs. You've got the uh, uber swanky uh, HMOs and you've got the cheaper end as well. Uh, it depends where you're at. HMOs have always been profitable, but they're a lot more labour intensive. So it depends what you're weighing up. Okay. So can you talk us through the numbers of your first deal? If yeah. you can remember. Yeah, I can, I can remember. We purchased it for uh, just under 300000 um, for a corner property at that time, we were told that was uh, quite expensive. Um, the seller at the last minute also raised the price by £10,000. Prices were going up at the time, which we bit the bullet and, and bought it. Uh, I remember having the conversation with two partners. We were like, should we, should we not, should we, should we not? Um, reality was, if we didn't buy that and the time we had spent, and if we had gone elsewhere, we probably would have ended up spending the same amount or more. Um, but a lot of people told us it was overpriced what we paid, and it was. Um, but we had a vision of converting it to three flats, and the value that would have added outstripped what um, we overpaid. But that's for first property. I'd say that's a very courageous thing to do. Normally, people just do the vanilla buy to let as a first property. But what made you do a HMO corner plot? I think it was the three years, four years that I'd been watching markets go up in price uh, and looking for a strategy that worked. For me, that, that seemed like we were diversifying the property. So we were reducing the risk because we had one mortgage, but we, had three, we were going for three flats. And by making one a HMO, we had multiple incomes coming from one property. So ultimately, what we were looking for was not to pay the mortgage ourselves. Uh, if there was a void, we still had it covered because we had more than one unit yeah. bringing in income. So it looked like um, a way to de-risk what we were doing. And that actually became my model of how, how to invest initially. Not knowing that that was a, a model because I was just doing it just to de-risk and uh, also maximise the income that we could get from a property. So, so after this property, what was your next few investments? Were they all similar? Yes, the next few were very similar. Um, but most of my, well, nearly all of my money was spent on purchasing this property. So we used a mortgage, we used our savings to purchase this property as a deposit. Um, we also used our own money to separate it into flats and do the property up. So by that time I had no money left over, uh, but I was approached by somebody asking me, could I do the same thing again? Only, only problem being uh, I had no money. So I told them I could, um, but I was honest with them and told them I've got no money so I can't financially do it but doing what I did I could replicate that I shouldn't actually be a problem. So what did you do with that uh, person who came to you? So th they came to me and they said well we've actually got some money um, from an investor uh, put aside and as long as you can pay the investor back within 12 months is that something you can do? So looking at the numbers I was looking at how much rent actually comes in and it didn't work. So we had to start thinking, how else can I get money out? And that was when I started looking at refinancing and if the value goes up, can I actually get the money out? Is that the no money down? Yeah. So, so is it literally no money down, it, the strategy? It was no money down. I, I didn't, look, at that time there was no courses or training, so I didn't know what was no money down. 
the whole aim was to leave no money in or to pay back the investor was what I was looking to do. So the whole point was if I could buy the property, do what was needed to be done, add value, and then repay the investor, could I do that within 12 months? Did you? Yes. Okay, successful. Yes. S similar model, bought a, a five-bedroom house, converted that into two flats. Again, made one into a HMO and the other one into a single let, refinance, and paid the investor back. And at this, at this time, did you have money for the next investment? Again, no, because... Oh, <laughs> or you paid the investor back? Yeah, paid the investor back again. Uh, no money, no money left in. Um, none of my own money left in. Um, and, and I think that's where the spark for not leaving any money in or no money down came about. So how did you find the money for your next investment? So, so on, on the second one, finding the money from somebody else that wasn't myself or... Um, uh, a relative, I was always looking at now, how can I get the funds for a deposit and how can I quickly pay them back? So started speaking to friends, family, relatives, anybody that might have funds that would be interested. Um, firstly was, would they look back to JV? Secondly was, if they, if, they did, if they didn't find property interesting or they thought it was risky, would they be interested in lending the money and I'd pay them back within a short period of time? And, and finding out who would do that. Um, I had a few family members that were interested in both. Did you find, did you find uh, anyone to give you the money? My father lent me a, a, a small amount on one of the properties that I purchased later on. Um, again, one of, one of my other relatives lent my younger, so me and my younger brother also bought a property together and one of my other relatives lent him some money. But that, that one was very different and we only needed a small amount to actually borrow. But that, that got into the, uh, to the point where I started understanding how to add value to properties and, and get the money out of properties quickly. So now it takes about six months. But at that point, it was prior to the 2007 crash. So you didn't have to wait six months to refinance. Um, it was able to be done um, pretty quickly. So how, talk us through the process through how you got your money out of the property. So you buy the property, then you add value. How do you add value? So you always got to look at where the value is being added and where your risk and costs are. Yeah. Right. So where I found the risks would be is, if, is mainly in the unknowns. So the more you have experience, you reduce your risk. And the costs are usually finance costs and fees. So if you can reduce those things, then you can bring your costs down. Um, so normally when you buy a property, you would buy the property, pay your stamp duty, refurbish it, and then refinance. And that's quite a, um, a good model even today to be done. I mean, a lot of people do the BRR model. But what I was looking at is if I can reduce all of those costs that are associated during that period, then I could come out at the end of it either with very little money left in or no money left in, and in some cases get some money out. So with my younger brother, what we did was we agreed to purchase a flat and on exchange, we wanted access to the property. So on exchange, what we did was we went in, we totally refurbished the flat. How long between exchange and completion? Um, six weeks. Okay, so good time. Yeah, good time. And back then, mortgages didn't take more than two weeks to be able to okay. um, get an offer in and actually have the uh, solicitor draw the money down. So on exchange, we, we done it with a nominal uh, figure. So we only had to put a thousand pounds down. We refurbished the flat, 
and within six weeks we got the lender to revalue it at a higher price. And then basically at completion, is that when you got your refinance or what? Yes. So basically you bought the property with the bank's money. No, with the bank's money, with your money. The, but it's one, still the bank's money. Yeah, so this one was a little bit... Um, this was one of the first times I tried this. What we did was me and my brother were buying it together and then we sold it to my brother. So on exchange, it was me and my brother purchasing it and on completion, it was only my brother purchasing it. So we had purchased at uh, 108 and then sold it to him to, for 130. So between, between 108 and 130, um, we were able to get a higher value on, uh, on refine. It wasn't even refine, it was an actual on purchase. Yeah. Um, and we got, basically we had to put in approximately 800 pounds between the two of us to purchase the property. That's peanuts. Yeah. Considering, it, considering it's a property. Yeah, considering it's, it's a newly refurbished flat and it was generating after mortgage 500 pounds. Yeah, because you can't get a deposit for that up north. No. <laughs> so it's, okay, so that's, that's a really interesting one. So then, when did you start looking at other strategies? Because you talk about title splits, you talk about no money down is one of them. Yeah. Uh, you talk about uh, lease options. When, what, when did you get involved in creative deals? You, you, you speak about vendor finance recently a lot as well. Yeah. Which I still haven't got my head around. But. Yeah, so uh, again, it's like the reason why people sometimes um, can't get their head around things like vendor finance is when we, when we go through school and, and the financial system, everybody thinks you need to take, uh, you need to get a job, you need to work, you need to save up that deposit and then buy a house and get a 75, 85 or 90% deposit, depending on uh, what type of mortgage you get. That's the norm. Now, the thing is, where does that other um, 15, 20, 25% come from? That's the bit that most people think you have to work for. Now, the problem I have with, uh, with that 25% being worked for is, you work, you're gonna pay tax on that in income, and then you're gonna use that towards a deposit for a property. You're then gonna uh, pay tax on all the income that you're making from that property as well. But if that property itself has that value and the lender is willing to lend you the money, then you haven't had to pay tax on that income. So is there a way, again, to pay that deposit or find a way of getting, it's not necessarily a deposit, it's equity. So you, you start thinking of it slightly differently. So now, if you're buying it, either you're buying it and to raise the deposit can take you a couple of years sometimes. What if the person you're buying it from who has that equity lends you that money and then you're paying it from the property? I need, to, I need to look at the numbers properly. <laughs> Before, then I'll get my head around it properly. What, what, what was your next strategy after No Money Down? Um, I don't think... I think No Money Down is, isn't just a single strategy. It's, it's a way of doing or purchasing property. And, and there is no real No Money Down. It's none of your own money down or none of your own money left in. Uh, and that's what you're aiming for. Uh, because would you say it's similar to the buy, refurb, refinance model? Buy, refurb, refinance, you usually have to have some money in. Um, at the purchasing stage um, when you're doing the refurb. Um, it's, it's really no money left in at a certain time. So no money down can be 
no money left in depending on what period you're looking at so i'm usually looking within 12 months there's got to be no money left in okay and then when was your next interesting deal that you did uh, i think one of my oh, i think sailor uh, sailor were very interesting during that period and one of them was um again very interesting uh, so sailor rent backs is when you buy the property and rent it back to the owner yeah, yeah. go put a, ca a caveat on that it's no longer legal <laughs> right it, it, it was it legal when you did it yes it was legal <laughs> it was legal when i when i done it so it's no longer legal so if anybody's listening don't do it <laughs> um sailing rent back is yeah basically where you purchase a property from a vendor and then you rent it back to them um and it was a brilliant strategy back then and one of the ones that i i'd say i really enjoyed was I purchased a property from a gentleman in, near Crawley. It was a one-bedroom house. At that time, I didn't know there was one-bedroom houses. But every day is a school day, you learn these things. Um, one-bedroom house, and he wanted to sell the property, but he wanted to rent it back. And he had spoken to a few different uh, companies and people, had an, had an offer on. What was his reasoning? All right, so he was slightly elderly. At that point, he was um, early early 50s. Um, used to work for an insurance company. Uh, speaking to him, it sounded like if if he could stay in the property, um, he would be eligible for housing benefit. So it, it made more sense for him to claim housing benefit to pay towards his rent rather than him paying a mortgage. Okay. And then what happened when he spoke to companies? Yeah, well, what, what happened was um, back then there wasn't deal packages. It was uh, you'd buy leads and you had to make the leads into deals. So I bought a lead for 50 pounds and I contacted this gentleman, spoke to him, found out what his um, issues were, what he wanted to do, and decided, done my due diligence, background checks on the property and the area prices, what I could afford. I decided I'll go down and speak to him in, in person and make him an offer. So I'd written all the numbers, what I could offer him, had it in my back pocket, went down, sat down and uh, had a conversation with him, found out what he wanted to do. And he pulled out a piece of paper with the offers he's had. And all he asked was, um, nobody else has come to see me. Everybody's spoken to me either on the phone or email. You're the first person that's come to see me. If you can match any of these offers, I'd rather go with you. The thing was, the offers were way lower than what I was about to offer. <laughs> so he'd inadvertently given me the price that he'd wanted. That's the worst, worst thing about negotiating. You don't, you don't give your, you don't show all your cards. Yeah. So obviously, I didn't take the paper out from the back, from my back pocket. Um, so what he wanted was he wanted a five-year deal. So he wanted a discounted uh, rate on his rent for a short period of time, but he wanted security of being able to stay in the property. So I offered him, I'd give him a secure five-year uh, AST, but in in return for that, I wanted the first three years rent upfront because he'll be receiving um, this lump, uh, lump sum. I wanted the first three years up front. And again, the reason for three years is after that, he'd be eligible to housing benefit. So I wanted the first three years up front um, and he agreed to that. So that was a purchase. The, uh, the purchase price of the property was 100,000. The value of the property was 150,000. So- Did you I, refinance it? Sorry? Did you refinance the property? I bought it for cash. Now, I bought it for cash and I refinanced it the following day, but I didn't buy it with my cash. <laughs> Again, I borrowed uh, from an investor I'd met 
a couple of weeks prior. Uh, phoned him up and asked him, can I borrow £90,000 because I had uh, £10,000 myself. I said, can I borrow £90,000 only for a couple of days? Uh, explained what was going on and he said, yeah, no problem. Send me your solicitor's detail and he sent me the money. So that's the first time I had somebody just send me, um, an investor send me money like that. Um, and we re refinanced the day after purchasing at 150,000 market value. So I got 135,000 from the lender and 15, 000, just under 15,000 from the vendor. So the day after purchasing the property, I had just, just over 49,000 pounds sent to my bank account for purchasing the property. Was that the most money you've made in like a day? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, on, on that, yeah, that type of deal, yeah. That's, that's quite creative. What other kind of creative deals can you show up or tell us about? Yeah, I mean, then the finance, like we, we, we discussed, um, th those are, when, when it's pulled off, it's, it just feels like uh, you've achieved something because you're going in, you're buying something with some, some it's, the person that's selling the property has the equity. That's the thing. So you're buying the property with their equity. Yeah. You're offering them a service. Yeah. So it's not, you're not like, just taking their money or taking their equity. You're offering them a service. They usually want out. They usually want to sell the property. Um, they don't want to live there or whatever it might be. It might be an investment property that they, need, they want to get rid of. So they have a reason why they want to get rid of it. Now you're offering them that service of, I'll take it on. But if I was to borrow the money from the bank, this is what I would pay the bank. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather pay it to you. Would you be interested? What are you going to do with the money? So when a vendor turns around and says, my money's going to be sitting in the bank. That's when mind, your alarm bells are ringing. Yeah, not alarm bells, my, my mind's saying, why would you want to leave it in the bank? Why, why can't I offer you a little bit more money? And uh, you benefit and I benefit. So when you're negotiating deals, what's your secret? Because you seem to get a good value out of the deals you negotiate. There's no secret. I, I don't actually buy property. I just help the person selling the property get what they want to achieve. Try and find a way to help them. I'm not. I'm never. I'm never really looking to buy property. That's that's the difference. I'm only looking to help people. You've got a learning program as well, isn't it? A learning program. Is there a learning program where you help people purchase properties? Okay. Um, I help investors um, build their portfolio, um, yeah. and I also consult with um, Kevin McDonald on No Money Down on, on that course. Um, occasionally with Progressive uh, um, on the Dalmody Down course, yeah. Okay, so going to Progressive, why did you start Progressive? What is Progressive? All right, so Progressive is mainly a training company. Um, they have networking events as well. Um, the reason I went to Pro Progressive, they were running a multiple streams of property income event. And I wanted to go to see what was happening and uh, network. I'd, I'd been in property at this time, I'd actually been semi-retired, so I was, I was taking a back seat and I wasn't buying more property, I was uh, taking it quite easy. Um, all of my children had started school, so I had a bit of time on my hand and I was like, I want to get back into doing what I do best, what I enjoy most, which is uh, structuring deals in property. So, checked out some of the networking events and what people are doing, uh, went to a Masopi. Uh, and lo and behold, I ended up joining the, the academy program, which was previously called uh, VIP, uh, and bought a few uh, <laughs> training courses as well. And then how did you become the host? Oh, the host of uh, PPN Stratford. 
Um, during that same year, I, I said one thing, anybody offers me something, anybody asks me to do something, I'll say yes to anything, that's not illegal. Uh, and the opportunity came to be a host or run a PPN. Uh, so I said, okay, I'm gonna do it. And you've known me from before, I'm not really a talkative person. I was surprised when you said you're a host because <laughs> you're, you're, you're quite in your shell. Yeah. But I think the last few years you've opened up a lot more. Yeah. It's given you a confidence to probably believe in what you're saying or believe to teach others. I, th I think, I, because I am, I am an introvert, I don't find, I, I never have been comfortable in public speaking or, you know, generally being the person in the limelight or anything like that. I, I've, always, I've always kept myself to myself sort of thing. So ha having said that I'm going to say yes to everything and when the opportunity came, I didn't really have much choice but to, to do it. But did you feel like you were going out of your comfort zone? Oh yeah, definitely. I still am. So how did you, how do you cope with that? I suppose what's the worst that can happen, really? Um, meeting so many people at networking events, speaking to people, realizing what I had done was kind of a niche, and not everybody had uh, exposure or had um, heard other people that had been doing things like that. I wanted to get out there and tell people some of my journey as well as teach people there are other ways to invest. There's not just the one way to invest. And I can't really do that by not getting out there and speak. Um, so that's, that's what really kind of like motivated me to get out there and uh, speak to people and tell people what I've done. Did you feel like you achieved something by structuring these deals in a different way and then being able to tell others about it and then help others about it? Because one thing is just telling people that's what I've done. Other thing that's sitting down and say, you know what, number one, Manby Grove has come up, this is the prize, but you can do this. And does it feel like an achievement? Any, any deal where, it's almost like a game. It is a game where you're trying to get to that zero number. So you're trying to leave nothing in. So whenever you achieve that, it's like winning the game. It feels, it feels like that. But teaching somebody as well, when they've come with a, with a problem yeah. and where you can solve their problem, that in itself feels like an achievement. So yeah, helping people, and they will go on to do the same thing as well. It, feel, it feels good to be able to say, I helped that person, and then that person helped somebody else. Give us an example of when you've helped someone maybe get out of a sticky situation. Okay, so re recently we, um, I purchased a property using, well, when I say purchased, I secured a property using a lease option. Now, this vendor, she'd um, owned the property for 13 odd years. It's been used as a HMO. It's a large property, uh, 11 bed HMO. It'd been run as a HMO. She's had a managing agent uh, managing it. But unfortunately, they haven't been managing it very well. The property hadn't been maintained very well. And one thing led to another, she wasn't getting paid all the time. Maintain maintenance wasn't being uh, kept very well it got to the point where her mortgage hadn't been paid for almost 12 months. She put the property on the market to sell it. She had a few offers, she accepted an offer. And unfortunately, at the last minute, they pulled out saying they wanted to reduce the offer. But the problem was because she had arrears and the mortgage, when the offer they were offering meant that she would have to pay out of her own pocket just to be able to sell her own property. So she wasn't in negative equity, but had she sold it, she would have had to pull some money out. So initially, um, she had approached somebody that I know, and that person 
gave her my contact details and asked her to speak to myself. So when I initially spoke to her, I said, look, would you consider doing it in a particular way? And I approached her and uh, offered her a lease option. She'd already been in, pro in property, she'd been on training courses and had trained people and she understood lease options very well. Okay, so what's a lease option? A uh, lease option, to put simply, it's two contracts. Uh, one where you're agreeing to rent the property and another one where you're agreeing to purchase the property at a set figure that you agree today. Um, this might be at a later stage, call it three years, five years or seven years. Um, so you agree a time period within which you can exercise the option to purchase the property at that price. So why is that better than buying it outright? Depending on the situation. So for this lady, the, the situation was, if I bought it right now, it wasn't really worth what she was selling it for. So I, for, for her, she was selling it for 350. Speaking further with her, found out that she had more debts, not just the 350, she had another further 20,000 pounds worth of debts. Now, selling the property meant she would still have the debts. And so she'd still have the problems. So found a way, even though the, the purchase price was 350, if I, if I offered her 370, that will solve both of her problems. But that's not today's value. So I offered to purchase it anytime within seven years at the value set 370. Some, some people would say that you're taking advantage of a situation, but you're, or you're taking advantage of the seller. How would this? How did the seller feel at that time? Because she's in a problem. Yeah. You're coming with a solution, even though it's to your benefit, but yeah. it's an, still an opportunity. So, what would you say to people who'd say, "Well, you're taking advantage of a vulnerable seller at that time"? I've heard, I have heard that before, uh, but you've got to look at the uh, at her opportunity cost. So, when I initially offered that, she did not accept the offer. She understood exactly what I was offering. Um, she didn't accept the offer. Uh, it was. A, it was. A, Further two months later, where she came back and said, you know, I'm really struggling and I don't really see any way out. And I think what you are offering actually now makes sense. Can we go through the numbers and actually understand it? Because initially, sometimes when people are struggling, they do think that people are trying to take advantage of them. It was only at that point that actually the £20,000 came up because pre previous to that, the offer would have been at 350 So when she explained, I asked her to explain all of her debts, not just everything related to the property. She explained her situation and then the offer was made based on solving all of her financial problems as opposed to just the property. And that's the reason we offered more than the asking price. So essentially you've got into your pocket to assist the vendor, even though long run you might have benefited, but you've helped her cover some of her other debts as well? Yes. Okay, that's good, that's good. Because I remember you mentioned in the last PPN that we're, we're gonna come to a downside in the housing market and there are gonna be opportunities. Some people are gonna say, well, you're seizing on other people's downfalls, but if a person's house is gonna get repossessed, which could have happened to this lady, you'd rather buy that property, help them out of their problem, and then you benefit as well. Yeah. The other thing is a lot of the time the vendors have not been repossessed before so they don't understand the process once the property is repossessed the process that they go through the banks are not bothered about what equity you had they're bothered about getting their money out they're bothered about getting their interest and they're bothered about getting their fees 
and everybody along the way is thinking about their fees. So by doing it, by offering a lease option, what you're trying to do is help them reduce all of these costs. And not only that, once you've been repossessed, that's a marker on, on your file as well. So you're not going to really get credit or be able to purchase another property very soon. Okay. Um, let's talk about some of the more difficult moments that you've probably endured during your property process. What would you say is the most difficult, most toughest moment that you've had? You mentioned quite a few times about not having money to invest or go further. Uh, but what would you say your most difficult moment was? I think not having money isn't the most difficult point. Um, you, you become resourceful, you become creative when you haven't got money. Um, most difficult points is finding out who is who are true friends and family, etc. Um, there, there are points where money causes problems. Money has definitely caused problems to the point where I thought, is it even worthwhile having or making this amount of money? When people see you're making money, people have certain demands on you as well. So, so some of the things, especially family-wise, it did affect me initially because I went from studying to making small amounts of money to suddenly it, I was almost catapulted into making large sums of money. Although I was making large sums of money, I was reinvesting it always in property. So that's what I was doing. But people don't see it like that. So how did you deal with family and friends looking at you differently? The initial or treating phase, you differently? Yeah, the, the, the initial phase is, um, is basically trying to stay away from people. <laughs> <laughs> stay away from anybody that's um, you know causing issues um, you have people that uh, backbite will say certain things um, I even got called a drug dealer because people didn't know what I was doing you had the Range Rover as well no that was prior, prior, <laughs> prior, prior to that yeah. prior to that yeah no that that was uh, one incident yeah well I, I was uh, I was called a drug dealer where my mom actually did come up to me and asked me are you dealing drugs because somebody's told me that the only way you could be making this amount of money is drugs, um, which uh, I did explain. And then, yeah, she, she was a bit better with that. Okay. And then what did you do after? So you said the first stage you was ignoring them. Did you confront them or did you have a way, like just keep them like at an arm's length? What did you do? Um, so it depends. Um, fam Family-wise, I think I had to go through a certain amount of understanding and learning who, what, and why um, and other people it was way easier so uh, friends and family who sometimes people do get jealous um, so they, they were quite easy I suppose you can cut ties but family is different um, you can't really cut ties so that that one was a bit of a learning curve for, for me and I think Asian families also do a lot together so trying to separate finances, family, and understanding where that separation is took me a bit of time. How do you feel you are at this present time going through them difficulties? Because it's not easy, like you said about Asian families, when yeah. Asian families clash, they clash hard. Yeah. Um, and they're tight-knit communities, so everyone finds out. Yeah. And like you said, you got called a drug dealer. Um, so how, how do you feel your relationships are now? I think, um, especially me being a bit more open now, it's made things easier. I try to be a bit more open book. Um, with the family wise, I think it was a good thing to go through because it, you know where the lines are. 
it's, it's not so blurry so it's, it's not like people don't know what's what so I, I think it, it was definitely worthwhile going through it at the time it didn't feel like it but now I feel we're all in a better position everybody is in a better position for it okay so do you feel you've overcome that issue in your life or do you think it's still an ongoing thing I think if, if wealth has has its responsibilities as well so it's it's not anything that's gonna um go away but i do think yes we have dealt with it very well um what advice would you give to your 18 year old self a very good question <laughs> at, at 19 years old yeah you were investing in market stall holders yeah. you started thinking of creative ways of buying properties you got gazumped you've lost money uh, you're talking about taking risks but if you were to go back to when you started uni what would you tell yourself i probably would have told myself not to continue at university <laughs> i know it's not the best advice to give other people but i would have probably told myself not to continue at university and just go f fully into property at 19 even though i got gazumped just carry on that's interesting because on one of the other podcasts we've done it was the same conversation where uh, the guest he didn't go uni and he said I tell people not to go uni and I say the same my regret is probably going to uni <laughs> because it's like what did I learn in three years and I could do a three-year accounting course yeah. in one year and I could have done so much more in that time but you were stuck in that cycle that rat race that you have to go educate yourself, get a good job. Uh, I think during that age as well, um, your mind is very flexible. Um, you're also at, usually at a stage where, for myself, I was living with parents. So your expenditure is quite low. You, you can be quite risky in terms of how you invest. At that, at that stage, you don't know better. So you sometimes do the things that you, you wouldn't do later on because you understood what, <laughs> what could go wrong. So I think going through university, those three years, had I spent it investing, it, I don't know where I'm going to be, but, you know, that's hindsight, isn't it? So then would you advise your kids to go to uni? I would advise people to go to uni. It depends on, it depends on uh, what type of person they are, if they are very creative and they know how to make money. So I feel university is a fallback. Understanding how to make money is totally different, right? And once you understand or know how to make money, not having money doesn't actually bother you because you know how to make it. I think Samuel Leeds has that challenge, yeah. the £10,000 challenge, first one to make 10000 because he's confident in himself. He knows how to make money. Yeah. And I think he said, it, he had a tweet the other day. That he goes, I know more law than lawyers. I know more about property than estate agents and are more about accounting than accountant because he's in the field and when you're in the field you yeah. it's that experience yeah. that helps you grow essentially yeah are you retired i, <laughs> I have to ask that I, I i did retire at one point so the, the reason i done that was um i had a goal of once i get to my freedom figure i would retire um and I set a five-year tar uh, target of being able to achieve it. What, what was your freedom figure? Would you, would you like to share that with us? 
was actually a very simple freedom figure. For me, it was I wanted all of my expenses paid. That meant uh, things like mortgage, rent, um, all of my utilities, shopping, clothing, transport. And then I wanted to have an extra £300 every, every week. So I could live like a king. I could be able to go on holidays whenever I wanted to, do all the things that I wanted to. That's, that's all I really wanted. If everything is paid for, you really don't need that much more money. And that, that was my uh, aim to get to that freedom figure. Okay. Um, how do you reach your goals? So how did you reach your freedom, freedom figure? Is it your planning or did you do anything consistently to reach your goals? Yeah, you have to be consistent. One, one of the things I did was um, work out what the goal was. Because if you don't know what you're aiming for, you're just going to be aiming in every single direction. So that was my goal, get myself to my freedom figure within five years. Um, once you know what you're aiming for, it's easier to get there. So for myself, I didn't achieve it in five years. Um, I'd done it in one. So having that target actually focused me to be able to do what I, I wanted to do. You talk about you were speaking regularly to investors when you were initially out investing. Um, and then obviously you host PPN Stratford. So why should people network? All right, so networking is very much undervalued. Now, the reason why I think everybody should be out there networking is it's not what you know. Uh, it is a bit of who you know, and it's also to do with who knows you. It's not always about, I have this much money, I can buy this property. When you come to a larger deal, if people don't know what you've been up to, people don't know what you're able to do, what your capabilities are, they haven't seen you. When you suddenly ask for money or you ask for investment, people are not gonna be interested in investing with you. Plus, when you come up against challenges in property, which you always have, who do you know that's gonna be able to solve that or resolve that problem? If you have a network of people that you know that have done it before, it's so much easier and quicker to just pick up the phone and say, look, I've got this issue, how do I solve it? Or who do you know that can solve it? Have you had times where you've had to go to your network to solve problems? Yeah, so I've, I've helped other people as well in a similar way, but I have always, um, the first people that I look to is people within the network, whether it be a solicitor for a specific niche, um, I'll, I'll phone somebody from within the network and say, who do you know who's the best for this? Uh, planning game, again, who's the best person for this type of uh, planning? And, uh, and I'll get an answer pretty quickly and uh, I'll give them a call to see if they can help. But if you don't have a network, you don't know who, who, who's the best person for it. Okay, and you also do public speaking now, right? I do. <laughs> so how did you do, go from an introvert yeah. to public speaking? Well, one of the things I did do was I done a public speaking course with Progressive. Um, highly recommend it as well. It's uh, the expert speaker revolution. It just gives you some of the techniques of uh, when speaking, how to uh, structure it. Whereas previously, um, I, I just found everything about public speaking really difficult. Did you ever get like uh, stage fright when you first started to do it? Now you're a pro, even on camera you're a pro. But... No, 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 I'm not a pro. I still, look, I still, whenever I'm, I'm hosting even, when I get up, I get the butterflies, I get a bit nervous. Um, I think it's also good because I always am trying to get past that. 
I, I see that as a challenge, something that I'm, I've, I'm almost always battling with. But because I'm always battling it and I know I need to get to the other, other side of it, I, I always try. Okay. Um, what's your, what's your, because you're semi-retired, I would say then. Yeah. Because you, you don't have a job, you just go out looking for property deals. But what's your like daily routine and specifically morning routine? <laughs> or if there is a morning routine? Uh, I, <laughs> people ain't going to like to hear this, so. You wake up at 10 o'clock? I get up whenever. <laughs> Okay. This is not the Alright, uh, yeah, no. I, I get up We can say life of a semi retired Yeah, I, I get up when I feel like unless I have to be somewhere. Yeah. Um I do enjoy my sleep. Um and I think it's uh, something it's 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 a valuable part. You do need to get rest and everything like that. I value my sleep a lot. So those people who want to get to semi-retired level, would you advise them to get up when they want or would you advise them to get up early in the morning? I personally find getting up early in the morning, I can finish a lot of my difficult tasks of the day. In the afternoon, I'm just wasting time. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't advise you to do that before you get to the stage where you're financially free. Um, my early days, I'd, I'd get up early to do whatever was necessary. Um, there must be something that drives you. So, um, do you have a routine for Mondays or is your Monday like a normal day? Mondays generally are a busy day, yeah. Mondays tend to, because over the weekend most people are not working and you're replying to emails and trying to catch up with things on a Monday. Okay, uh, one thing I forgot to ask. Um, as a landlord, are you a landlord? Yes. So as a landlord, what is the worst bit about being a landlord. Everyone talks, everyone thinks landlord is easy. You just get rent coming in. But when you have them problems as a landlord, what's your worst bit? Because um, your property has been trashed as well. Yeah, yeah, as a landlord, that's, that's, that comes as part of the business. Um, as a landlord, I think that's what it is. Tenants not paying, them trashing the property. Um, even when agents, uh, are you know I've had a few times when agents are not paying. We look after his property, guys. <laughs> not you guys, but but this is the thing. So again, it's it's down to that trying to find what you don't enjoy, what you don't want to do. Um, is there somebody that, that wants to do that or enjoys doing that, and maybe passing over that part of the business to them to look after? Do you find a lot of it tedious? Like the we were talking about earlier about HMOs, and it's now very labour intensive because there's compliance coming out of your ears um, do you find is that the part you just find tedious I think it depends at what age or what stage you're at um, when I first started in property that sort of stuff used to, used to kind of drive me and I, I used to be also hands on art. Wait, you're an electrician right <laughs> you are aren't it yes <laughs> I just remembered that I'm, I'm very hands-on. I can do carpentry, I can do electrical, I can do plumbing as well. And although I enjoy, and I did enjoy, um, electrics and carpentry, I don't now enjoy doing it uh, on a regular basis for other people. I find it therapeutic sometimes doing it for myself, uh, but it's not something that I'd uh, still continue doing. Why did you become an electrician? It's just because you enjoyed it? Yeah, because... You I was, didn't need to do it. I was rewiring houses and it seemed like something that was uh, quite straightforward and simple. So I just learned how to do it. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it was pretty good while I was doing it. I enjoyed it. Okay. 
Um, what's your plan for 2023? 2023, is, I think it's going to be a very good and big year. Um, I am looking to do a lot more land deals, uh, more developments. Um, so I'm, I'm going more towards doing developments now. Um, I'm still sticking with my bread and butter, which is doing lease options and vendor finance. If it's a year where there's going to people be struggling, um, I'd like to be in a position where I can help people and uh, you know create win-win situations. Okay, and are you going to go big on social media, or try to go big on social media? I think it's um, definitely worthwhile, and I I say I will. But then sometimes we take on too, too much. And Didn't you do a social media challenge or something where you challenge yourself to post every day for 30 days or something like that? No, no, I've done 10-day video live. Yeah, I did do that. I didn't do a 30-day... I've done a 30-day uh, push-up challenge. Oh, OK. Do you want to do some now? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, OK, just a few quick via questions before we finish off. Yeah. Uh, Favourite holiday destination? Oh... Malaysia. Good choice. Favourite food? I've got quite a few. Uh, I go for Turkish. Favourite restaurant? Valdi. Where's or that? Vardy. It's in um, North London. Okay. Favourite movie? Terminator. And what are you most scared of? That's a good question. I don't know if I should answer that because then I'll end up trying to do something about it. <laughs> you should answer it. You can come back this time next year on this sofa and then we can see if you've done anything about it. Um, what am I most afraid of? I really don't know. It was public speaking, but I now do that. So what was your second? Confined spaces. Really? Yeah. Is that due to COVID? No. Uh, I just think uh, you need your space. Yeah, claustrophobia. Not exactly totally claustrophobia, but yeah, confined space. Are you scared of lifts? No. If they stop? No. Okay, fair enough. And lastly, how much do you love Mondays? Mondays is just like every other day. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, where can people find you? Um, not at my house. <laughs> no, you can find me on social media Facebook, Instagram. Um, I think I'm on TikTok as well now, and LinkedIn. Okay, so we'll put your handles in the description so people can find you. Yeah. Uh, Motu, thank you very much for coming on the I Love Monday podcast. This time next year, we'll see if you've conquered your fear of confined spaces. And uh, make sure you follow him on Instagram, Super Investor, and come to the PPN Stratford event, which I've not come to for the past two years, except once. Thank you very much. Yeah.